Thank you, Dr. Faisal Devji, Professor Ruth Harris, Professor Sir Richard Saurabhji, and all you lovely people, welcome. 15th August, 2016. The occasion was the 69th India's Independence Day. And the Indian Prime Minister, whom you just saw, Honorable Sri Narendra Modi, paid tribute to a highly revered Jain saint, poet, and philosopher, Srimad Rath Chandraji, and brought the world's attention to him as Mahatma Gandhi's spiritual guide, the one who inspired and instilled the values of truth and nonviolence that Gandhi used successfully in the fight for India's independence. In recognition for his pioneering ideology, Gandhi earned the title of the Mahatma, which means the great soul, an honor that is normally reserved only for the holiest of men in India. With India's Republic Day round the corner, followed shortly by the 70th death anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi, it's quite befitting to consider, in the words of Shakespeare, was Gandhi born great? Did he achieve greatness? Or was greatness thrust upon him? A cursory look at his early life while he grew up in India, the three years that he spent in England studying to become a barrister, and his failed attempts at establishing a law practice upon returning to India is a fair indication that Gandhiji was definitely not born great. In which case, were there any significant people or events that sparked greatness in the life of an ordinary Mohandas and transformed him into a Mahatma? In his own words, Mahatma Gandhi has said, I've often declared that I've learned and learned much from the lives of many persons. But it was from Srimadji's life that I have learned the most. I owe much to his living company. To get a glimpse of the influence that Srimad Rajchandraji had on Gandhi, let us step back in time and history to 6th of July, 1891, the day when a young 21-year-old newly qualified barrister returned from England and landed in Bombay. He was introduced to a young man, barely two years older than him, named Srimad Rajchandraji, a poet, a philosopher, widely respected as a man of great spiritual knowledge and a shatavdhani, meaning a person who can attend to a hundred things simultaneously. In other words, multitask times 100. The intrigued Gandhi requested a demonstration. So Gandhi was asked to say 50 words from any language of his choice. Srimad Rajchandraji was then asked to repeat these words in the exact sequence in which they were spoken. Not only that, also random words, this number, say it in reverse order, and many such things. And Srimad Rajchandraji did everything with total accuracy. Here was Gandhi, proud of his knowledge of languages, proud of having studied in England, humbled by a man his own age, who had very little formal education and no knowledge of English or other foreign languages. Gandhi was naturally in awe and admiration. But what impressed him even more was the fact that Srimadji had stopped giving public demonstration of his extraordinary skills and turned down several lucrative offers to go to Europe because it was not helpful in his spiritual pursuit. Dedicating an entire chapter Srimad Rajchandraji in his autobiography, The Story of My Experiments with Truth. It's titled Raichand because that's how he referred to Srimad Rajchandraji at the time. Gandhiji writes, my first meeting with him convinced me that he was a man of great character and learning. In this meeting, Gandhiji also learned his lesson, first lesson from Srimadji. One need not go to England or elsewhere to command respect. Respect can be earned only by one's virtues. Over the next two years, this acquaintance grew to become a very special bond. 
struggling to make his mark in his profession, Gandhiji would visit Srimadji frequently and observe him very minutely. Every day, seekers like him would come in search of knowledge and Srimadji would discuss religious matters with them. Gandhiji also posed many questions, which Srimadji would resolve with conviction. In his autobiography, Gandhiji writes, I enjoyed the closest association with him. I was but a briefless barrister then, and yet whenever I saw him, he would engage me in conversation of a seriously religious nature. Watching Srimadji at work, handling diamonds and pearls, Gandhiji writes, Rajan Bhai's commercial transactions covered hundreds <coughs> of thousands, but all these things were not the center around which his life revolved. That center was the passion to see God face to face. I saw him thus absorbed in godly pursuits in the midst of business, not once or twice, but very often. I never saw him lose his state of equipoise. As time passed, Gandhiji developed increasingly greater respect for Srimadji. Srimadji's wide knowledge of scriptures, his spotless character and his burning passion for self-realization left Gandhiji spellbound. In his business dealings, Gandhiji observed firsthand Srimadji's work ethics, fairness, righteousness, compassion, honesty and integrity. And consequently, Gandhiji writes, I had come in closest personal touch with him. His judgment appealed to my moral sense. The bedrock of his faith was unquestionably ahimsa, non-violence. His ahimsa, if it included the tiniest insect, also covered the whole of humanity. If Gandhiji was drawn to Rachandraji as naturally as iron to magnet, Rachandraji too was equally happy and grateful to find someone his own age who was genuinely interested in the nature of the soul and the subjects of the spirit. In one of his early letters to Gandhi, Srimad Rachandraji writes, It is very gratifying for me indeed to find that you feel inclined to let your thoughts dwell on the nature of the soul to whatever extent you can, that you're inclined to turn your steps on the path of enlightenment and it is this prospect that pleases me so much. Another aspect that Gandhiji admired about Srimad Rachandraji was the manner in which he continued to pursue his spiritual quest whilst fulfilling his responsibilities as a family man. Commenting on this, Gandhiji writes, it's generally believed that the spheres of practical affairs of business and spiritual pursuits are distinct from and incompatible with each other. Raichanpai showed through his life that if a man is devoted to religion, this devotion should be evident in every action of his. It is not true at all that religion is something only to be observed on certain days of the year or on a Sunday in temples, churches or mosques, but not in a shop. In admiration, Gandhiji writes, I have not observed in anyone else such a beautiful combination of practical ability and devotion to religion as I did in Srimadji. South Africa. A new chapter begins in Gandhi's life. 1893, as you know, Gandhiji left to go to South Africa. His regular meetings with Srimadji had to stop, but he continued his association through correspondence on a regular basis. Srimadji's passion for self-realization had kindled a quest for truth in Gandhiji. And he writes, if I found myself entirely absorbed in the service of the community, the reason behind it was my desire for self-realization. I had made the religion of service my own, as I felt that God could be realized only through service. I'd gone to South Africa for travel, for finding an escape and for gaining my own livelihood. But as I've said, I found myself in search of God and striving for self-realization. Over there, there were times when Gandhiji had burning questions and doubts regarding his own religion, which was Hinduism, 
and was even attracted to adopt other religions. During these times of spiritual crisis, he would write to Srimadji, and upon receiving a reply, Gandhiji said, I gained peace of mind. I felt reassured that Hinduism could give me what I needed. And he further wrote, I've since met many a religious leader and teacher. I've tried to meet the heads of various faiths, and I must say that no one else has ever made on me the impression that Raichanbhai did. His words went straight home to me. His intellect compelled as great a regard from me as his moral earnestness, and deep down in me was the conviction that he would never willingly lead me astray and would always confide to me his innermost thoughts. In my moments of spiritual crisis, he was my refuge. From Srimad Rachandraji, Gandhiji learned how to be, respect, uh, to be respectful to different religions and feel goodwill even for people who may differ from his own views. I'd now like to raise a topic on celibacy. In 1906, Gandhiji and his wife publicly undertook a vow of lifelong celibacy. Gandhiji has written in his autobiography in the chapter entitled Brahmacharya that it was Srimadji's influence that had led him to make this decision. It's interesting that the chapter in the English translation of the autobiography is entitled Brahmacharya and not celibacy. Because in its true essence, Brahmacharya, as explained by Srimad Rachandraji, did not merely mean refraining from sexual acts and sensual pleasures. It meant control of the senses in thought, word, and deed. It meant complete control over not just one's body, but even the subtlest thought processes of the mind. Sharing his experience, Gandhiji writes, those who practice true brahmacharya even for a short period will see how their body and mind improve steadily in strength and power, and they will not at any cost be willing to part with this treasure. I have, in my own person, experienced the inestimable benefits of brahmacharya, writes Gandhiji. In 1901, Whilst Gandhiji was still in South Africa, 10 years had passed since the first meeting with Srimad Chandraji. He received news from India that Srimadji had contracted an incurable illness and had passed away prematurely at the young age of 33. Gandhiji had lost a dear friend, a dear guide. He lost the physical presence of Srimadji, but Recollections of their close personal association and the correspondence that they had shared became his constant companions. Srimadji was a profound and prolific writer and he had written many philosophical compositions including <coughs> proving the existence of the soul and how to attain self-realization. During periods when Gandhiji was in jail, he would often read and reflect over Srimadji's writings. Regularly recommending people to read his writings, Gandhiji wrote, his writings are the quintessence of his experiences. Anyone who reads them, reflects over them, and follows them in his life will find the path to liberation easier. His yearning for sense pleasures will become progressively weaker. He will become disinterested in the affairs of the world will cease to be attached to the life of the body and devote himself to the welfare of the soul. Further, he writes, I always felt that Srimadji's writings breathe the spirit of truth. He did not write a single word in order to show off his knowledge. His aim in his writings was to share his inward bliss with the readers. In one of his letters, Gandhiji writes, the more I consider his life and his writings, the more I consider him to have been the best Indian of his times. Thus we see that Gandhiji was truly inspired and influenced by the unique qualities of Srimad Rachandraji, his equanimity, honesty, purity, integrity, 
and above all, his God-centered day-to-day life. For the first time, Gandhi had met a man who did not just preach, he practiced. Not just wrote, spoke and taught about lofty spiritual ideals, but lived up to them and lived by them. What you see and admire, you imbibe. Gandhi had the rare opportunity to observe, internalize and with practice emulate many of Srimadji's virtues. Gandhi aspired to live like his mentor with an uncompromising devotion to truth, strict observance of ahimsa and other moral and spiritual goals. The very foundation of Satyagraha was based on three major Jain principles of Satya, truth, ahimsa, non-injury, including love and compassion for all, and tapasya, voluntary suffering, which Gandhi imbibed from Srimadra Chandraji. Ahimsa in Jainism is an all-embracing concept of not only hurting anyone physically or mentally, but also loving everyone unconditionally, wishing them well, walking an extra mile to help them even if he was an enemy in trouble, and forgiving even those who have hurt you. Gandhi said that he benefited a great deal from both these Jain doctrines, and particularly from Anekantvad, which means multiplicity of viewpoints, which taught him not to assign bad motives to his opponents even when they disagreed with him. I end my presentation today with a quote that Albert Einstein wrote about Mahatma Gandhi. He said, Generations to come, it may well be, will scarce believe that such a man as this one ever in flesh and blood walked upon this earth. Perhaps Gandhi felt the same way about Srimadra Chandraji when he wrote, of all the men I knew, he appeared to me to be the nearer, to be nearer perfection than the rest. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kajil. I learned a lot from that. Uh, I was going to say something first, that um, <clears throat> among the influences on uh, Gandhi, I think the more people influenced him, uh, he did so much reinterpretation. Uh, can you hear? Yeah. Good. He did so much uh, reinterpretation that he often finished up more unlike the people who'd influenced him uh, most. And I'll just give some examples of this. Uh, take Ruskin. Uh, in 1908, uh, Gandhi paraphrased Ruskin's uh, work, Unto This Last. That's a reference to a story about uh, how, according to the uh, Old Testament of the Bible, the Christian and Jewish Bible, uh, a workman who came last to help in the vineyard nonetheless got the same wages and Gandhi thought this was an important story. It showed that John Stuart Mill's account of economics was absolutely wrong because it left out morality, whereas this story is concerned for the welfare of workers, so it brings morality into economics. Uh, he was very influenced by Ruskin on that matter, but not on all matters because uh, Gandhi thought that factories uh, were a bad thing, uh, whereas Ruskin was very happy with factories. So there were very strong differences between them. He was picking out one element of Ruskin. Now let me take Christ. Uh, Gandhi gave lectures in 1926 on a part of uh, Christ's uh, doctrines, uh, a sermon that Christ gave called the Sermon on the Mount, and he very much liked the idea that if somebody strikes you on the cheek, Christ says you should turn the other cheek. He very much likes the expression, blessed are the merciful. He very much likes uh, Christ saying that if somebody takes your coat, you should offer your cloak. He regards that as preaching non-possession, and it fits with his idea that you should hold riches only as a trustee for other people. And he very much liked 
the fact that uh, Christ fasted uh, for <coughs> 40 days in the desert. <coughs> so, so far, it looks as if he is, a lot of Christians thought, on the way to being converted to Christianity, not in the least. Uh, <coughs> he adds all sorts of things Christians wouldn't like at all. It doesn't matter whether Christ lived or not. It's the doctrine that's important. After all, it doesn't matter whether uh, Arjuna and Krishna ever had the conversation in the Bhagavad Gita. It's the doctrine that matters. Uh, anyhow, these wonderful doctrines can be found in, in every religion, slightly implausible, uh, but it's nice that, uh, when they're found here. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but the impossibilities in Christianity, God can't, can't beget a son, Christ. Uh, Christ can't redeem everybody. Um, and he positively hated the saying, nobody comes to God the Father except through me, the Son Christ. Uh, so, <clears throat> and he was against people converting in general. No need to convert if you're a Christian, don't convert. If you're a Hindu, don't convert. Stay with your own religion. So, of course, the Christians were very disappointed. <clears throat> now, he also wrote in 1908 um, a paraphrase of Plato's account of Socrates' defense when he was charged on a capital charge of corrupting the youth by uh, disputing their moral views and introducing new gods. Um, <clears throat> and he called uh, Socrates uh, a satyagrahi, a word he'd invented that, in that year, 1908, uh, a warrior of truth in one of the English translations. Uh, well, very impressed by Socrates, but... That's not the way uh, Plato describes him in his uh, reconstruction of his defense, which Plato didn't hear. He doesn't call him true. He calls him good. Plato uh, also say, ha has Socrates say he never found the truth at all. He was insisting on people being consistent, uh, so they mustn't contradict themselves. But even so, he never found the truth, he says, Socrates according to Plato. Uh, Socrates admits that when he asked uh, so-called uh, self-styled experts um, <clears throat> about their views and showed that they were contradicting themselves, I instead of uh, everybody getting close to the truth, uh, these so-called experts got extremely angry, so it wasn't very effective even, um, and so on. Uh, but none of this, uh, and, uh, and none of this uh, that Plato brings out about Socrates' defense uh, at his trial comes out in, in, in Gandhi. <clears throat> he did take from Gandhi um, uh, 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 something that Gandhi said that he had an inner voice which warned him against doing certain things and this had in antiquity been connected with the voice of conscience, uh, an ancient Greek uh, idea which the Christians later took over. Um, uh, but um, uh, uh, and and uh, um, uh, 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 Gandhi also spoke of uh, conscience as a voice, but uh, he doesn't point that out, the connection with conscience, uh, when he's talking about Gandhi. Now, I'm learning about Rajchandra, and this is a wonderful opportunity for me, um, but one of the things that um, uh, Gandhi really loved about the, uh, the Jain views he'd learned uh, was, I shall pronounce it wrong, Anikantavada, um, <clears throat> the idea that everybody has only partial views. He said that again and again uh, as a doctrine to promote tolerance. But um, something very odd, which I, I, I hope I will now understand better, but on the birthday of Tolstoy, and I must look up the year, I'm very sorry I didn't bring my book with me about Gandhi, where I'd have the date, but he said on one of Tolstoy's birthdays that <clears throat> the doctrine of non-violence he learnt in India, uh, he was totally against. Uh, and he'd become a devotee of violence because he was so much against the Indian view. Now, he doesn't say wh whose Indian view this was, and so perhaps I can learn from you about that. Um, uh, <clears throat> he felt this was a view, it doesn't matter if you tread on a beetle, uh, but I must keep myself pure. Nothing to do with compassion doesn't sound like uh, so we'll learn I, I shall learn more um, <clears throat> also in some of his works he presents his uh, asceticism 
uh, in the context of being necessary for his campaigns in South Africa. Uh, for example, in Hind Swaraj, 1909, so quite early and in South Africa, he says we've got to reduce desires by brahmacharya, poverty, truth, fearlessness, which we must practice. But it's all in Hind Swaraj in the context of you won't be effective in your campaign unless you do this. So I hadn't got the picture that he, you've been giving us, I'm very grateful to you, that he was independently interested mm -hmm. in, 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 in the asceticism. Uh, <clears throat> now, I'm going to take somebody extremely unlikely. The last person you'd think influenced Gandhi was his great opponent, Tagore. Now, what a wonderful country India was that it produced two such great minds totally opposed to each other as Tagore and Mahatma Gandhi at the same time. Uh, always respectful of each other, but totally disagreeing. We're indebted to the wonderful letters that have been recently published between them, quite recently. Uh, now, um, what so annoyed Tagore was uh, that he thought freedom was creativity. And here was Gandhi saying everybody must spin. Totally uncreative. He totally refused to spin. He wouldn't spend one minute spinning. It was totally uncreative. In 1917, Tagore wrote Nationalism, and he said uh, he doesn't like nationalism. Uh, the nation is people organized as a power, and power is totally uncreative. What you need instead is constructive work. And in The Call of Truth, 1921, Tagore said, look here, Gandhi is making everybody spin, but men are diverse. Doesn't he understand we're not like bees who all do the same thing? So you might think there couldn't possibly be any influence on Gandhi. Weren't they totally opposed? Ah, but after Tagore's death, we find Gandhi coming surprisingly close, very belatedly, uh, to what had been said in the 1940s, what had earlier been said by Tagore. For example, speaking <coughs> to the Gandhi Seva Sang in 1940, he said, now don't all try to join my uh, resistance to the British movement uh, because everybody has their own svadharma, uh, uh, their, their personal duty, uh, different for different people. And ask yourselves, will you get angry if you uh, uh, <clears throat> confront the British and they attack you? In that case, that's not your svadharma. Your svadharma is something else. Um, and uh, <clears throat> in the nineteen. Uh, <clears throat> 40s, he expressed his view that villages uh, are better than having a central nation. So in those two respects, uh, everybody is different and village is better than nation. He came in the 1940s uh, to be very close to Tagore, who is no longer alive. <clears throat> Finally, uh, late in his life, uh, in prison in 1922 to 24, he read one book on the Stoics, actually rather a good uh, Victorian book on the Stoics, um, and he said it was inspiring. And a lot of his views were very like the views of the ancient Greek Stoics, um, and I think he finished up more like them precisely because he read them too late uh, to be influenced by them. So he didn't think, oh, wonderful, I shall read these people uh, and then start reinterpreting them. No, He'd formed his views, so he didn't reinterpret them. And I think he finished up closer to them than he did to all these people who actually influenced him. Now, I want to take the one who relates to Rajchandra most closely, and that's Tolstoy. Uh, Tolstoy, in 1894, wrote, The kingdom of God is within you. And Gandhi borrowed from that the idea, first of all, of the law of love. And secondly, he says, he learned from Tolstoy the idea that nonviolence is an ocean of compassion. Yes. He doesn't mention Rajchandra, and I want to learn from you why not. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now, there are strong differences uh, from Tolstoy, in spite of learning so much from him. What Tolstoy was doing was encouraging people to refuse compulsory military conscription. Uh, but Gandhi says, now look, wait a moment, that's not enough, good as far as it goes, but you've got to prepare people for the punishments they'll undergo if they refuse conscription. It's illegal, they will be punished. And so 
uh, Gandhi says, I'm preparing them because they must learn first to renounce things. Sex, number one. But all these other things we talked about earlier, all this other asceticism is very important. This, again, is 1909 in Swaraj, because until you've learned these renunciations, sex being the hardest, uh, you won't be able to stand up when they say, no, conscription's compulsory and we're putting you in prison. Uh, again, uh, <clears throat> he said more than that one should um, uh, suffer punishment uh, willingly, he regarded punishment, suffering punishment willingly, as an actually a, a weapon against the British at any rate. It may not have worked with uh, Hitler, as he imagined, but uh, it was quite successful as a weapon, a we weapon, a positive weapon, not just uh, something you endured, but a weapon against the British. And finally, Gandhi, uh, Tagore had used the word constructive program. We don't want Gandhi spinning. We want constructive program. And, of course, Gandhi eventually, by the 40s, had got 18 different types of constructive work, of which spinning was only one. So, um, retrospectively, he was qualifying... Um, he was qualifying the need to be non-violent in these confrontational situations by offering situations which weren't confrontational. Um, I wanted to just tell you about seven articles that are not so well known in 1926 because they're not in the collected works. They're in Day to Day with Gandhi by his secretary. Uh, but they were occasioned by Gandhi congratulating a municipal council for killing 60 stray dogs, killing them. From all over India, horrified Hindus wrote in and said, we thought you were a man of nonviolence. Uh, and Gandhi published their letters in his newspapers, uh, an, an admirable thing to do, what philosophers should do, uh, don't distort your opponents, publish them. Uh, <clears throat> and rethought the question which he hadn't addressed before, when is killing uh, uh, nonviolent and when is it violent? And he decided in these very profound articles that killing is nonviolent only if it's for the sake of the killed. Oh, so hadn't he admitted that he was completely wrong uh, because these rabid dogs, these dogs who might become rabid, that's why they were killed, uh, um, they hadn't been killed for their own sake. So wasn't he admitting that he was completely wrong and his critics were right? No, because he was a very good philosopher and he was much more subtle than that. He said, violence is indeed always wrong. Well, wasn't that the final admission? He, Gandhi was wrong. No. He said, not killing the dogs could have been even more wrong. He wrote more about this later. We're often in a situation where whatever we do is wrong. It's not our fault we've got into this situation. Uh, if, through no fault of our own, we get into the situation where whatever we're going to do is wrong, we've got to decide which is more wrong. Uh, not killing the dogs in this case. So he recognized something which the ancient Greeks recognized, but the earlier Christians couldn't bear to recognize. The earlier Christians said, it must be your fault if you've gone to a position where whatever you do is going to be wrong. Because the Christians had the idea that God's going to punish you for eternity if you do something wrong, uh, if, it's, if it's really wrong. Um, so uh, uh, God being just, it, 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 it can't be because it's your fault. Eventually the Christians did acknowledge that. But the Greeks acknowledged it from the beginning. In the famous Greek story, after ten years away at the Trojan War, Back comes the great husband warrior, Agamemnon. And meanwhile, his wife's got a fancy man, so she murders him in his bath. And now the son has got to avenge his father uh, uh, by killing the murderer, who's his mother. Whichever he does is wrong. It's wrong not to avenge his father. It's equally wrong uh, <clears throat> uh, to kill his mother. It's no fault of his. The Greeks recognized 
you can be in this double bind, moral double bind, through no fault of your own. Uh, but here Gandhi recognizes it plainly and explains why, although killing the dogs was wrong, um, the other was more wrong. So, like the Stoics, and this is one of the uh, connections, he doesn't think there are any exceptionless rules, like, um, uh, uh, like uh, uh, never kill unless it's for the sake of uh, the th animal killed. So, there he is, talking in response to Tolstoy uh, about nonviolence, and strangely, not in these contexts, mentioning Rajchandra. Hmm. I'm grateful because I'm going to learn more now about why not. Thank you, for, thank you to both of you, because again, um, many of these themes are coming back in all our presentations. I even have recently read the letters about the dogs and the calf killing, which raises all these problems about violence. And the whole thing about um, when is uh, nonviolence provocation and confrontation. And I think these point to some of the real uh, difficulties of Gandhi's philosophy, but also the, what, the areas where he's most perceptive in some ways. And we should see what we think, I think, in the, um, the discussion. And before I begin, I just want to say that I'm a great admirer of Gandhi. It took me a whole year to um, read some of his work and to think about him. And so I feel bad being the only one to take a rather more critical approach to him. But I will nonetheless, because I'm coming from a slightly different perspective. Um, first, I'd just like to say that uh, he it says in his autobiography that he utterly believes, quote, in the Hindu theory of the guru and his importance in spiritual realization. And yet, he never, as he says again, enthroned Rashambai in his heart. Um, somehow, he is not the ceaseless um, striver after perfection that he seeks. And I would say that it's precisely because of Gandhi's experiments with truth that he was constitutionally averse to one single person or doctrine infusing his thought and action. Um, he believed too much in each person's obligation, moral duty, to see truth in his or her own way because of his belief in this populist individualism that many critics have misjudged. And this will take us back to the whole story of spinning, because on one level, you're supposed to find your truth in, in, in a way, and yet here he is saying, let's have an army of spinners, which is precisely the thing that Tagore objects to. So there are contradictions and changes as they go along. Um, and I think that because of this belief in each individual's path, that it was hard for him to often see what it was like for people who did seek him out as the embodiment of truth and what it meant for them. So I would like today briefly to talk about two things. First, about some of the Western women um, who were engaged with him. And I'm looking at the example of Madeline Slade, or Miraben, who was part of his intimate entourage. And she's important because she's the daughter of a British admiral. I'm interested in her as part of a larger study that I'm doing on the relationship between charismatic Asian figures and Western women, Western women who often were disenchanted with Christianity, conventional Victorian morality, and sought in Eastern experience, um, an Eastern religion, solutions to spiritual, moral, and global problems. I began, uh, I begin with work on Vivekananda, who saw um, this business of what he called missionizing the West as part of his global project. And he, when he was back home, um, the Ramakrishnan mission was about uplift. Um, but when he went West, it was to subvert the coercions of Christianity and European ideals. And part of the connection to these Western women was for them to teach the world, the Christian world, about a spirituality that was not coercive, the, what, he, what they felt was the milder, more peaceful, non-violent Indian spirituality. Now back to Mirabhan, 
Um, her story is particular. After all, she's not an Indian. She's quite rare. I mean, there are early, many early European devotees of Gandhi, especially in South Africa, but increasingly they're more Indian. She's a British woman of the upper class, as I say. She spends a child with her father, is um, um, uh, important in India in organizing military and naval activities. And she gives up everything to dedicate her life to Gandhi and the Indian freedom struggle. Um, some people have condemned her presence and seen him as seen it as part of his political wiliness. After all, it did cause no harm to see a woman of this pedigree uh, devoting her life to the removal of the British from the subcontinent. But I think that these kind of instrumental explanations of Gandhi never see the whole picture. He was um, deeply concerned with helping her liberate herself, and the fact that she never was able to was a profound disappointment to him. Uh, I know from a friend who's working on Mirabend amongst Bengali documents that um, there were many Indians, especially in the ashrams, who found her terribly irritating, a real nuisance. She was always there pushing people aside, trying to get closer to the Mahatma. But let me tell you a little bit about her story and think about you know, what it could mean to people as individuals when Gandhi wanted friendships based on equality, when there could not be that equality. Um, she comes to him through a famous French intellectual whose name is Romain Roland, who famously wrote a book called Au Dessous de la Mêlée, which is a book about um, people refusing uh, the violence of World War I. And he literally goes above the Mêlée, and he moves to Switzerland um, and to a neutral country. And she comes to him through a shared love of Beethoven, strangely enough, um, and then through um, um, his growing obsession. He writes about Vivekananda and Ramakrishna and then Gandhi. Um, he gets his Nobel Prize one year before, one year after Tagore. And he writes to Ta Tagore, we are two hemispheres of the same brain of humanity both essential to prevent the world's degeneration. I think this is fascinating how, for Roland, it's about essentializing what is East and what is West. And if the, in this partnership, something remarkable will come. And now he's trying to do this with Gandhi. And of course, as you've just explained, nobody could have been further from um, Tagore than Gandhi, especially at this point. I mean, he's, and yet, he sees Gandhi's, um, campaigning as remarkable, a, a middle way and something spiritualized that will work against both fascism and Bolshevism. And what he does is he gives Madeleine Slade as a gift from west to east. And so what is interesting about this story is, of course, these two great men having this woman who they give to one another. Um, and when she sees Gandhi, it's an epiphany for Slade. Remember, she, she cannot understand what a guru could mean, and it's certainly not the way that Gandhi is re-envisaging notions of spirituality and friendship. And she writes, as I entered, a, a slight brown figure rose up and came toward me. I was conscious of nothing but a sense of light. I fell on my knees, hands gently raised me up, and a voice said, you shall be my daughter. So she integrates herself into the ashram's routine, embraces the harshest asceticism, and revels in the attempts to turn her into a, co quote, common village girl. He cuts off her hair with her own hands and renames her after Mirabai, um, the great 16th century ecstatic disciple of Lord Krishna. So, um, and of course, she spins. In fact, she spends a lot of time spinning. She hates it, too. She tries not to admit that she hates it. She gives Gandhi, who's very impatient with his spinning, a lot of advice about how to do it while in prison. But it's, it's typical of um, this period that when she finally does take Gandhi with her to, to see Roland, um, she, she has to give up. Um, Beethoven, they try to g get him to enjoy, quote, creativity and genius, and he laughs, and he says, it must be good because you tell me so. When there's discussion of teaching Indian disciples French, 
he, he immediately says this is a waste of time, and which is all fascinating. Um, and as Roland lectures him on the nature of history and the class struggle, Gandhi says, I, I'm not interested in history. I'm only interested in my experiments of truth and my intuition. So this is a really quite remarkable meeting. Um, and what she never understands is that Gandhi dislikes intimacy on principle. And we know about this from his autobiography. It's the, it's the, Muslim, the bad Muslim friend who pushes him astray to making him eat meat. He thinks friendship is undesirable because, quote, the desire for merger inevitably created dangerous instability. For him, friendship was an identity of souls, a connection of equals, nevertheless based on clear boundaries, like Muslim, Hindu-Muslim friendship in the political realm. And, but Mirabin could not keep these boundaries. And I think her almost leech-like attachment to him is all the more tragic because in some ways she represents the failure of upper-class education. She's a lovelorn child raised by nannies with a distant father and an elusive mother. And she clings to Gandhi to fulfill her intense yearning for affection. And of course, Gandhi is ambiguous in, quote, his friendships, because in the micropolitics of the ashram, there's this constant jostling of who is going to be near the great man, because he's a human being. And status, um, inspiration comes from connection with him. So what happens in the end is that her vulnerability touches him very much, but her needs infuriate him. And he tries to get her to take on a role as a proper fight, freedom fighter. Um, she does a bit. She gets on a well with Eleanor Roosevelt when she goes to America, because they're kind of from the same class. <laughs> it's not surprising. But in, and, but in the end, um, when she, he dies, she really is left with nothing and, and goes back to Austria and to writing a biography of Beethoven, which she never finishes. This is not to say she doesn't do a lot for him and uh, vice versa. I mean, some of the b letters he writes to her are really some of the most beautiful, some of the most beautiful in terms of the, you know, the compassion he has for her pain. Um, and she because she is also deeply ascetic in her nature. She understands the food rituals. She turns away the food offerings. When they go to London, every day she cooks the food and takes it from the East End to the, um, to the conferences in the Round Table Conference, trooping across London with her basket. You know, they go with the goats, so he doesn't have to break his vow about drinking milk. All of this, these are the kinds of things that she, she does with him. She does the experiments with the latrines, um, where she you know, looks at what goes in and what goes out. These are the kind of things that many of the Indian disciples don't want to do, and she is willing to. So, um, and when she, she's one of the first to go to the village of Sindhi when he begins his campaign on the untouchables, and she is one of the people who tends the sick and moves the excreta, and she is isolated because, of course, after that, she cannot draw water from the well. So the sacrifices really are quite extraordinary. So she crumbles under the Mahatma's contradictory injunctions to be both free and disciplined. And there is this terrible contradiction. It's not something that can be easily erased. And it is, it is something that, um, for her, with, a very li with her literal mindedness, was very difficult to, she couldn't tease him. She couldn't do the things that many of the, her, his Indian disciples learned to do with such aplomb. Do I have another minute, or is that it? Are you sure? Do you mind if I go on? Um, because I, I was just going to say that one of the things that's interesting is to put him in an international perspective in terms of the image he creates. And again, what kind of inspiration? Now, this is a lower level of analysis that I'm making here. This is not about the spiritual. This is not about intimacy. But just to say that I think that Gandhi's brilliance um, as a national leader is that in, compared to all these strong men of the period, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, who were helmeted, who were always in uniform, who are, you know, mustached, Stalin with his mustache, Hitler with his goose-stepping crowds, 
um, and, and and Mussolini with uh, his obsession with masculinity. What what Gandhi does is that he 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 presents puniness. He's bespeckled. You can't imagine any of these men wearing spectacles. He wears a loincloth. He's half naked. He sits by a spinning wheel. We were talking earlier. It's the way he sits. He sits like um, he sits like a lady. He doesn't. He's not cross-legged. He's actually he sits, and he's often next to the spinning wheel. And so he has almost an androgynous, androgynous um, self-presentation that is really different than what is going on everywhere else. Um, and yet, once again, as in his relationships with his, his intimate disciples, there's the claims of humility with the reality of an extraordinary personal power and political power. And uh, whether that be in the ashrams, um, in, when he calls off, for example, non-collaboration in Chora Chora, which is an extraordinary moment of, of, of personal power. He, he annoys all his political collaborators. And above all, in the fasting, I can just imagine how he enjoyed Christ's fasting for 40 days. But if you read the testimony of the people around him, the anguish it causes is, is extraordinary. And here again, it is about provoking. It is you know, fasting has a, has a confrontational dimension, especially the way Gandhi uses it, because it is about f forcing people to change. Um, and yet, of course, that nature of that fasting is not this, it, it's, as you said, it's a weapon, not only against the British, but also against the ashram. So, you know, it, in the autobiography describes early fasting when there's just some childish peccadilloes going on. This is using, you know, Gandhi was extraordinarily attuned to the subtle dynamics of aggression uh, as much as he was of peace. And it's that genius of playing that both sides, I think, that makes him one of the great thinkers of the 20th century.